Lord, we want to thank you today for your word. Lord, just from the testimony that we heard and the psalm that we are reading, we are reminded, Lord, just of the preciousness of your word in a language that we understand. Lord, what an awesome thing it is to be able to read your word, to study your word, to allow your word to fashion and shape us to become like your son, Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, as, as I serve as your messenger this morning, would you allow me simply to be the mouthpiece for your text? Would we, as your people, be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Would those who do not know you see you in your majesty and your beauty and, and hear the gospel and, and understand that they are separated from you, but Christ, your son, the Messiah, has paid the, 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 the sin that we deserve by the shed blood of, of his blood on the cross. And Lord, this morning, would you have freedom to accomplish your purposes in us, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One of my, uh, one of my favorite writers is a guy by the name of Donald Whitney. You may have um, heard of him from his book, Spiritual Disciplines in the Christian Life. Um, it's kind of actually it's part of the foundation of what we're going to be doing with the men um, this weekend. Um, he also wrote a book called Ten Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health. And in that book, he says the following about the Psalms. And I found this to be very interesting and helpful. It's very simple. He says, the Psalms were inspired by God for the express purpose of being reflected to God. <laughs> I mean, these are, this is God's breathed out word. He has given us his word. But that word reveals God, and because we are the ones who receive that word, and we have this revelation from God about God, we now turn back to God in praise to God for who he is and what we know to be true about his revelation. So it is through the Psalms that we get this, this full truth about God, and we are able to offer back praise to him, and it comes through prayer. It comes through song, it comes through meditation, it comes through the preaching of God's word. But today I want to begin with a question, and if you follow along with this psalm, I think you understand why I'm asking this question. What do you think about when you consider the holiness of God? A.W. Tozer famously said, the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. And you and I have an answer to the question, what do you think about when you consider the holiness of God? What does it mean for God to be holy? Now some immediately think in their minds of sin and behaviors that we need to avoid, or God is going to be coming down and chasing them with this divine fly swatter of discipline. Carries with this, with this idea that God is an ogre, a killjoy, a, an unloving creator who, who demands 
obedience and is quick to exercise discipline. I mean, this God, he, he's out to get you. I don't know if you've ever seen or read the book Jane Eyre, but this came to mind. You may remember the story. Jane's young, and she's sent off to this girl's school, and the, this guy who's kind of like holding it all together is the local parson. And Jane does something a little bit out of, out of character, and he comes down with a heavy spiritual holy fist. But it is lacking in love. It is just this harsh, cold dealing with behavior. And sometimes that is what our view of God's holiness is. Now, sadly, for, for some people, that's, that's just all they've known. That's, that's what they've been taught. That's, that's the kind of context maybe they've grown up in a church where it's all about this heavy-handed holiness. For others, God's holiness means that he's simply distant and removed God, a God that reluctantly interacts with creation. I mean, if, if you pray and you pray hard, he might just kind of like nestle himself out of his throne and, and come your way to see what's going on and, and to just kind of deal with things. But he really wants to stay away from his creation. But friends, neither of those pictures is a complete understanding of what we find in Scripture about God's holiness. In fact, I think if you look at the psalm, you'll notice that it's broken up into three sections. It flows very simply into three stanzas. Stanza one, verses one through three, and it ends with holy is he, depending on your translation, or he is holy. Verse five then would be the end of the second stanza. It ends with holy is he. And verse nine ends with the Lord our God is holy. And so the psalmist writing this psalm is wanting to make sure that, that his readers and those who are going to sing this psalm understand something about God. And what is it? That he is holy. And so as we look at this psalm this morning, this psalm seeks to move us to exalt and to praise God as holy. It presents for us three magnificent reasons to marvel and praise at our holy God. Now, I've stated it that way because there is a sense for we who are God's children that he is our holy God. He is not an holy God out there somewhere. He is ours. We are his. There is this relationship that is going on, and we need to recognize and seek to understand his holiness in that kind of context. But what then is holiness? And simply put, we can say this. The Lord is different and separate from humankind. He is set apart from his creation. He is uh, holy is a word that emphasizes the distance between God and man, not only between purity and pollution, we would be the pollution, but also in the realm of being, between eternal and the creature that has been created by God. And if you think about it in those terms, God is so very much 
separated from us in his being. There is nothing that you and I could do to bridge that gap. Only God could find a way to bridge that gap. We sang about that this morning. We quoted scripture about that this morning, right? 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 5.1. Talking about it is God the Father who placed the sin and the wrath on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. It's only God that did that. We didn't do that. We are the recipients of his kindness and his grace. Now, the fact of God's holiness is repeated throughout the scriptures. But we must not take it casually. And our text reminds that us of that three times. But I also want you to notice Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. You know, this, you know the setting. Here is Isaiah and he's having this vision of God. And the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And some people come to this passage and they say, ah, see, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's like, no, 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 no. This is a Hebrew um, uh, mechanism, literary device, so to speak, that, that builds up. And, and to say it three times means that you cannot be any more holy than God. Holy, 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 boom. He is so removed. He is so separate. He is so far more pure than we are. He is holy. Exodus 15, 11 says this. Who among the gods, little g, is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. He's majestic in his holiness. Beautiful in his holiness. He is something to be seen in his holiness. And then in the book of Revelation, two verses that come to mind here. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you, what's the next word? Alone are holy. There is no one holy except for him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is eternally holy. And so this morning we want to walk through this psalm recognizing and marveling at God's Holiness, But there's certain aspects now of his holiness that are put on display for us. So number one is this. We want to marvel at his holy nature. In other words, at his whole being. And we first want to just notice that the text talks here about the fact that he reigns, that he's enthroned, that he is great. So we want to consider the greatness of this holy God. Now here we have the picture of the Lord sitting on his throne, much like an earthly king would be sitting on his earthly throne. But this, friends, is no ordinary king. This is no ordinary throne room. This is no ordinary throne. This is 
the greatest king who was and is and is to come, who is on display for us. And notice how the first two descriptions here of God as king move from a, a statement about God's greatness to creation's natural response. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble, or the nations tremble. He is in he sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. So we have the, the nations that tremble, we have the, the earth that quakes. But there's an image here that is being referenced at the last part of verse 1. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. At the heart of Israel's worship in the Old Testament was this ancient chest called the Ark of the Covenant. And it symbolized their special relationship with God. The lid of the box was, was known as the mercy seat. And on each side of the mercy seat were these golden angelic figures called the cherubim. This ark was placed in the holiest part of the great temple in Jerusalem. So when in the psalm God is pictured between the cherubim, the point is this. Yes, God reigns over the nations. That's important. But he has nonetheless established his kingdom tangibly on earth among his people, specifically in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant there was God's, might want to say, heaven coming down. This is where he met with his creation. This is where he met with his people. Now continue on as we, we go through these verses. You notice the, the, how the nations exalt. You see the Lord is not only the great king of Israel, but he is also the great exalted king over the nations. Verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion. Zion is a, another word there for Jerusalem. He is exalted over all the peoples. And just like our brother was saying, you know, the, we, we should not, not kind of like fear Muslims. They are these other nations that God is still bringing into the fold of his church by virtue of his gospel. And that's what's happening here. The nations also recognize that he is great in Zion. And Israel should be declaring to the nations that he is great in Zion. Israel's God reigns. He's enthroned. He's great and exalted over all the nations. And he is by his very nature set apart from other gods. He is holy. He is unique. He's above all other gods. In fact, we can say this. The reality is that there are no other gods beside the God of Israel. Now, friends, when we get that into our heads... It's a game changer. Because what, what happens is we kind of begin to think about all the different religions around the world and kind of we think of it in a pagan sense, kind of like it was in the Old Testament there where it's like, well, the Philistine God, he's over there and they're winning battles. He must be powerful. But what our God, you know, we're losing. And No, 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 no. There are no real Philistine gods. There's only one God. Yahweh is his name. And in our context today, as we are the church, there's only one Messiah. Jesus is his name. And friends, he reigns. And he rules. 
And certainly there are things out there that are daunting. There's, a, there's darkness that comes. We are intimidated by the things we hear about and we see. But behind us, there is a God who reigns, who is wholly set apart. And friends, it's not just in the arena of religion, but it's also in the arena of paganism where we're in a society that just seems to be overrun by the cult of sexuality. And we're just like, this is just ongoing. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And yet, he reigns. Even with that going on, he is still the God of this universe. And there's nothing that's happening that he's not aware of. He's holy and he reigns. Now this psalm is calling on all who tremble and quake to bow down and to worship God. And so as Israel would do that, they would be testifying to the nations around them that their God is holy and he reigns. And so we as the church, when we come together and we, we, we hear God's word, we sing his praises, we cry out to him in prayer, we are testifying to those around that we serve a God who is holy and who reigns by virtue of his nature. That is who he is. But notice now our praise. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. This idea of his name has the idea of reputation. It's really describing the totality of who God is. And we're told two things about his name. He is great. We're also told that he is awesome. Sadly, that word has been diminished by, sorry, the people in Southern California. <laughs> hey, dude, that's awesome, man. That is not exactly how the word is used in the scriptures. This word has an idea of being full of awe, or to put it a little differently, full of fear. And that fits really with the context, doesn't it? Because the people are trembling, the earth quakes. There's a sense in which we praise him because he's great, and he, by virtue of his nature, causes us to be full of fear. It's a reverential fear. It's an awe. It's an amazement. It's a dread. But it's not independent by itself. It is connected to the majesty and the beauty of who he is. When God is displayed in his fullness, as both great and to be feared, it gives us a fresh awareness of how we are to praise him. We don't Come and praise God in a cavalier or casual manner. And by that, I'm not talking about your clothing. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about how you approach, whether it's in a place like this, whether it's in a hut, whether it's uh, you know, in, in some shanty place, or whether it's out in a field. It's all about what's going on in your heart. How are you approaching God? We don't approach him on an equal footing. We <laughs> can't even imagine doing that. He's holy, and we are not. But 
This is what we know. If we are God's children, we know that Christ, because of Christ and what he did on the cross, and embracing Christ as our Lord and Savior, now we can come before God with confidence. We can come boldly, still with reverential fear. Still with an with a, a, a awareness of his majesty, but we have been welcomed in by virtue of the cross, by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done. Nothing, it's not because of anything we've done, it's only because of what he has done. I read about a, a college professor at a Christian college who mentioned the fear of God in his classroom and when stunned, when all of the students argued with him that we should not fear God because it is opposed to his love. But Peter says to conduct yourselves in fear. The Apostle Paul sums up in his discourse on the depravity of man by saying this, Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And I think it's safe to say that if you do not fear God, you do not know God. Knowing that he is holy should lead us to worship him with reverential fear. As we move on to the next stanza, I want you to not only marvel at his nature, but now moving out of that, marvel at his justice. So God is holy in his nature, that is in his very being, in his very character, and as such, his attitudes and his behaviors and his dealings with creation will always be holy. I like to think of, of God as a gardener. I think it helps, especially with this analogy of of understanding his holiness. Now, when I go out and work in the garden, one of the first things I look for is a pair of gloves. And of course, I can never find them, right? They're all, they were used to move somewhere here, or they're in the back of some car, or they're in a box somewhere, can't find them. When I finally get them, I'm thankful because I'm gonna go in the yard and I'm gonna get them dirty, and they're gonna protect my hands from all the prickly stuff that's out there, right? When God comes and he interacts with his um, creation, there's a sense in which we can say he's putting on his holy gloves and he's tending the garden of his creation. But unlike us, when we garden, our gloves get all muddy. His gloves never get dirty at all. They're never tainted by mud or filth. In fact, you could even say that God's gloves don't get muddy, the mud gets Glovey. And you think about that. In the divine plan, when Jesus Christ entered into creation, he was tempted, but he was not tainted. He maintained his holiness because by his very nature, he is holy. And he comes down, and as a result of what he has accomplished on the cross, kind of pull all this analogy together, we sang about it today. We who have embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior do not stand holy before God because of anything that we have done. We stand holy be before God because we are clothed with the righteous garments of Christ. That's what makes us holy. 
His holiness is not diminished by sin, evil, or wickedness that is rampant in this creation. He is holy, and his holiness is consistent and never changes. Now, when you think about the attributes of God, many people are tempted to say that the dominant attribute is what? Love. We love that one. I mean, even, even pagans love that one, right? People that aren't followers of, of the God of Israel or, or, or Christianity say, oh, well, God is love. Yeah, that's fine. You want to do that. We love love. The problem with that is nowhere in Scripture do we find the statement, the Lord is love, love, love. You see, because we would have a tendency to take love and to fashion it and to shape it according to our thinking, according to our desires. And if you want to say that there is a dominant attribute, and I think you might be in kind of strange territory if you come to that conclusion, but hear me out. I do think that we can say this, that God's holiness is the mortar between the bricks of his other attributes. Let me explain what I'm saying here. God's love is a holy love. See, holiness fashions the way in which God loves. His love is always going to be holy. It's always going to be pure. It's always going to be right, right? His mercy is a holy mercy. His anger is a holy anger. It's not a sinful anger. It's a right anger. God's faithfulness is a holy faithfulness. I think it would be probably best to say this. The reality is that God's attributes fashion and shape each other in such a way that they are interacting pure, perfectly and wholly and completely to magnify all of those attributes to be right, pure, and, and, and complete in, in the best way. You can't think about God's wrath without considering his mercy and love. You can't think about God's patience without considering his omnipotence. That means his, the fact that he's all power or his omnipresence, which means that he is everywhere. So it is now, as we consider God's justice, that we understand that this justice does not come from the fickle minds of humankind. His justice is not adjusted by the, the whims and the sins and the handshakes of manipulative leaders. It is a justice fashioned and shaped by his holiness. God's justice is holy. Now, friends, I want you to hear the beauty of that statement. This world might say, we want justice. But that isn't necessarily what they really want. What they want is what they sinfully want in their heart. God's justice is pure. It is always right. Let's think through this now. God's justice. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. We are told here that God is a strong and mighty king who rules over the people. But a strong king who lacks passion for justice will be a tyrant. And history is well attested to that. So we have here three facts. And let's just read them through. 
God is a mighty king who loves justice. Friends, when, when our leaders love justice, that's a good thing. God is a mighty king who established equity. That means fairness. God is a God of fairness. Now, you have to understand, it's not fairness and, and take that away from all the other attributes of God. And so it's fairness that is according to my liking. This is fairness that is an outgrowth of the, the, the character and the attributes and the holiness of God. Fact number three, God is a mighty king who executes justice and righteousness. Everything he does is right, is good. So when God exercises his power, he never exercises his power in such a way that it is out of balance. It is always holy. It is always just. It is always righteous. His omniscience, which is a big word that means that God knows everything, and, and his omniscience, the fact that he knows everything, will always then be the resource that he has that you don't have for him to judge things fairly. Because he's not just looking at your behavior, he's looking at your heart, and he can see everything that's going on in your heart. So God makes the rules, and he enforces the rules. Of course, there are people in our world who don't like that. They would like to make the rules themselves and live in a way that they please. But it is God who is the one in authority here. Now, that would be a terrible thing if God were cruel and unjust. If his desire was only to torment us or to afflict us, that would be an awful thing. And as we've mentioned, many in our world live in places like that where they have cruel dictators and they're oppressing the people for their own personal ends. But the scripture tells us that our king is mighty. He loves justice. He, he established equity or fairness. And he always does what is just and right. In fact, he cannot do anything other than what is just and right. Why? Because he is holy. <laughs> you see how this is all working together? Now, friends, this should comfort us that we serve a God who is just, but that his holiness fashions his justice and his fairness in the choices that he makes. He is always in control. Even when Satan raises his ugly head and we wonder what is going on, God has a bigger picture plan. He knows what he is accomplishing. Even in our suffering, he is holy. He is good. He is right. But now notice the praise. The scriptures teach us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone. Now you're either going to come willingly because you have declared in your heart, Jesus is Lord. You've sung it in church. You've praised God because you know that to be true. Or you're going to be going to God unwillingly, but because it's the final resignation before he's dealing with you in discipline, you will bow the knee and you will recognize that he is is Lord. 
Notice what it says in verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. We who are his children, understanding that we serve a holy God now, come and we can come and worship him. We can praise him. It says at his footstool. This is, again, Ark of the Covenant language. It's, it's actually describing the Ark of the Covenant. The footstool here is referencing that. But the idea here is that the person is bowing before the throne of a monarch in total submission to him. Everyone's going to have to do that. But we who know him, we who know that he's great, that he's mighty, that he's just, we come and we bow before him in praise. And we worship him. And we submit ourselves to him. Now notice this last section, marveling at God's holy forgiveness. In the same way that God's holiness fashions and shapes his justice, God's holiness fashions and shapes his forgiveness. Society has a different view of forgiveness than the scriptures teach. Let me just give you a couple of different ways that uh, this kind of gets messed up. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's what came to my mind. Sometimes they believe that an attitude of unforgiveness is well justified because of revenge. I don't have to forgive him. I'm not going to forgive you. It's the right thing to do, they would think. And this is this whole idea of forgive and forget. We need to forgive and we need to forget. And sadly, that attitude has invaded the church. We are not called to forgive and forget. And I just want to be real technical here, real careful, but I, I think this is important because some people say, well, that's what God does. God forgives and forgets. I want to tell you, no, 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 he doesn't. And I'm being technical here because I want to be careful because when we get this wrong, we have a wrong understanding of who God is. Just like our brother said, one little word, one little translation that could be off would, would change a picture and an understanding of who God is. God never, ever ever forgets. He cannot forget. To forget means that you don't know that you've forgotten. It's passive. It happens without you knowing. God, however, and this is where it's beautiful, chooses not to remember. So I can't forgive and forget but I can remember the sins that were committed against me, and I can say, you're forgiven. Even though I can remember what you did. That's what God does. He knows. He has a catalog of all the things that we've done. He knows. But he chooses not to remember. He chooses not to bring it up and hold it against you anymore. Let me just quote to you a couple of passages of Scripture. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions or our sins from us. God is a God of, who's about removing sin. And then in Hebrews 12, or 8.12, you could also say Isaiah 43.25, it says this, for, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities or their sin. I will remember their sin no more. This is a choice 
that God is making. So when you come to God and you ask for forgiveness, he forgives you and he chooses now not to hold it against you. He chooses not to bring it up and to dwell on it. It is done. He doesn't just forget it. See, for God to be forgetful is a smack against his character. The third thing, and you often hear this, well, if I'm forgiven, then why do I have to have some consequences? As if forgiveness also means you don't have to worry about the consequences. <laughs> well, the reality is that when you sin, there are consequences. And you may be forgiven of your sin, but you still have to live with the consequences. And friends, that's a lesson we need to learn. Scripture screams it at us, doesn't it? I mean, just even if we looked at 2 Samuel as we were going through the life of David, it was screaming at us that David will have consequences, although he's forgiven. Now, let's just work through these, these, these texts here together. God's forgiveness. We have here Moses and Aaron. They were among the priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. We have Moses, the lawgiver, Aaron, the priest, Samuel, the prophet. What are they doing? They're all standing before God as the representatives of the people, crying out to God on behalf of the people, crying out to God for forgiveness because of the behavior of the people. And what happens? God answers by his word. They called to the Lord and he answered them. Don't miss that. That is so beautiful. They called to God and God revealed his heart, his will, by speaking. And they, as servants of God, were to take the word person themselves, but also to turn to the people and to speak to the people what God had said, either to write it down or actually to verbally say it. God has spoken. Again, friends, the word of God is absolutely necessary for the people of God. And notice here the combination between prayer and the word of God. We come to God crying out. God comes and he reveals himself through his word. He's quick to respond to our prayers. He delights in the prayers of the upright. He has revealed his will in the pages of his word. And so just like Moses and Aaron and Samuel, we can cry out to God. And he will answer us through his word. The prayers of a contrite and repentant heart will be answered with forgiveness. But just to remind you, God had revealed himself, yes to Moses, yes to Aaron, yes to Samuel, but the writer of Hebrews reminds us that God's revelation didn't stop there. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Son is Jesus Christ, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, talking about Jesus here, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making 
purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now hear this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know who God is, then look to Jesus. God has revealed himself, and he's revealed himself in Jesus. But notice now verse 8, O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were forgiving, a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. See, holiness demands both forgiveness and consequence. See, God was, God was pure. God was holy in how he exercised forgiveness. Yes, when forgiveness was granted, he gave it. But God also was consistent to make sure that consequences were carried out too. Crime is forgiven, the consequences are meted out. There's a pardoning, but there's also a punishing. There's forgiveness as well as discipline. And as I mentioned before, you can't just think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm forgiven for my sins and somehow go back and change the impact of your sin. Now, you might go to people that you've sinned and, and seek, seek forgiveness, but the damage has been done. So we should not take his forgiveness lightly or for granted. Our sin always carries with it severe consequences in damaging people or in tarnishing the glory of God. I just want to move here quickly, just for the sake of time, to this, this section here on this last praise, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Holy is the Lord our, well, the Lord our God is holy. Holy. And notice the psalmist here has repeated the refrain, verses 3 and 5, with some slight variations. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Instead of worship at his footstool, he says worship at his holy mountain, which r refers to the temple mount. Derek Kidner puts it this way, the majesty is undiminished. But the last word is now given to intimacy. He is holy. He is also, against our deserving, not ashamed to be called ours. We may well worship. In other words, he is welcoming us as his children to come and to worship him. I want to take you to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. And some beautiful texts in, in, in the book of Hebrews, and this is one of them where we, we come to this contrast of the experience of Israel at Mount Sinai and the privileges that we have as God's children. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 through 24 and then 28 and 29. But listen to this, and just listen to the the language that's being used here and how, how it kind of connects to the song. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, 
the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jumping down to verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Listen. If you came in today thinking that God's holiness just simply was all about God hating stuff and wanting to be like whack-a-mole with your sins, I hope that that image has changed somewhat, that you've seen that God's holiness is, is part of it is his nature. It is who he is. He is set apart, and it is so unique because he's pure, he's right, he's just, He's fair. All these things are happening. And his holiness fashions and shapes every one of his attributes, but it also fashions and shapes how he interacts with us. We are not to run away from God, although we should fear him. But we come adoring him for who he is. In wonder at his majesty. But at the same time, fully and totally aware of our sinfulness, but at the same time, recognizing that as God's children, our sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so at the same time, we recognize that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Four concluding thoughts. Four concluding thoughts. If my computer is going to go out here. I don't know why, but it is. <clears throat> I know why. Conclude thought number one. A holding caution. I, I, wanna, I just want to caution us a little bit. David Wells, a number of years ago, wrote a book, God in the Wasteland, and I want you to listen to his analysis of how modern culture has infected the church. Just listen. He says, we have turned to a God that we can use rather than a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill all our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction, not because we've learned to think of him in this way through Christ, but because we have learned to think of him this way through the marketplace. In the marketplace, everything is for us, for our pleasure, for our satisfaction, and we have come to assume that it must be so in the church as well. And so we transform the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. goes on to say, The modern church is infatuated with the love of God and embarrassed at his holiness. We are more enamored with the therapeutic and psychological uses of God to provide us with inner peace that we are with the fact that he is holy and therefore we must be holy. And if we do not revere God as holy, then he rests lightly on us. We take him or leave him to the degree that we find him useful. Now friends, this is the caution. 
If we don't see God as holy, we begin to fashion and to shape him according to our whims. We take liberties, and we kind of cut and paste the scripture to do what we want it to do, rather than to allow it to be what forms our understanding of who God is. Secondly, there's a holy commandment. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says this, but as he who calls you is holy, God is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Friends, this is not a suggestion for God's people. This is a commandment for God's people. We are called to live holy lives. We are called now, having come and, and been a part of, of, of this new life in Christ, to live out of the gospel in such a way that our our thinking, our attitudes, our choices, our behaviors all please Christ, are being conformed to Christ. This is a commandment for us. The Apostle Paul says it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then notice a holy community, a holy community. Just touch on this, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 is that whole passage about, about marriage, but it's Christ and, and, and how marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And it says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Again, that means to set apart having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So point number two was much more personal. Point number three is much more corporate. As the church, this is what Christ is seeking to do to us, in us. And then the last one here is this, a holy chorus. This psalm is driving us to praise him. Now praise comes out in song. But praise also comes out in living. Yes, we need to be a singing people who praise God, but we need to be a people who live our lives out of praise. For he is holy. So our words, our attitudes, our choices, our thoughts, our prayers, our loves are all expressions of this praise to God. It's a great little book I want to just quickly finish with because I think it's going to help us tease out a few more things. Again, by a writer I love, Kevin DeYoung, and he's got this book called The Hole in Our Holiness. I don't know if you've read it or not. And he gives seven reasons why the church is so... Holy, H-O-L-Y, in their holiness. Let me just rattle them off. Just cause you to think. Throw some application here that, that will maybe kind of cause you to wonder and look at your own heart. Number one, for starters, it was too common in the past to equate holiness with abstaining from a few tobacco practices or taboo practices such as drinking, smoking, and dancing. 
And we often view holiness in that way, right? Well, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't run with those who do, right? And then secondly, related to the first is the fear that a passion for holiness makes you some kind of weird holdover from a bygone era. Well, I love holiness. Oh, well, you, you're a Puritan or something like that. You should be wearing like white and black. No. Number three. The other reason for the whole is that our churches have many unregenerate persons in them. The church has allowed people to come be a part of their gathering as if they are God's children when they truly are not God's children. And therefore, there's a lack of holiness because you can't expect an unbeliever to act like a believer when they're not a believer. Number four, our culture is a culture of cool is also partly to blame. In other words, it's not cool to be whole. <laughs> Number five, among more liberal Christians, the pursuit of holiness can be suspect because labeling, labeling any behavior as ungodly feels judgmental and intolerant. You say that anything is ungodly. <gasps> but even in the church? Number six, there's a reality that holiness is plain hard work, and we're just often lazy. And finally, many Christians have simply given up on their own sanctification. Now, friends, God is holy. We praise him for that. His holiness fashions Every one of his attributes. It permeates what we do and how we are to live. And we are called to worship him because he's holy. Let's worship him in song. Let's worship him with our lives. Let's worship him now even as we think back to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. To, to bridge the gap from that distance between where God was sitting in heaven and he came down to the earth, went to a cross, died as that sacrifice once for all, and in so doing, was able to bridge that gap and bring us into his family. We have been brought into a holy family. It's an amazing thought. It's a wonderful thought. Lord, help us today. We have sought to wrestle, Lord, with this incredible psalm. A psalm that spends more time, Lord, talking about you and looking at you and, and, and viewing you and seeing you for who you are. And the action that we are called to do in this psalm, Lord, is to respond by exalting you and praising you because you're holy. Lord, we do ask that we would not only glean who you are, but who you are then would begin to to simmer down into our hearts and begin to, to fashion and shape how we think about what we're doing and the choices that we make and, and how we are to live for your glory that would reflect lives that would be seeking to live holy lives. Lord, I ask that if there are those that are here, Lord, that are just wrestling with understanding who you are, wrestling with the gospel, Lord, that you would help them, Lord, just to comprehend first of all, that you 
are a holy God. You are a beautiful, majestic, incredible, to be feared, but to be loved, holy God. And that you can know him by walking through the cross of Jesus Christ. Asking forgiveness of your sins. Recognizing that Jesus died to pay for your sin. And as such, has made a, a pathway for you into the family of God. Lord, you are an awesome God. May we not be numb to your holiness. But may it fuel us, feed us, Lord, to worship you and to live for you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.